I actually had friends who had come from their logger towns in the Pacific Northwest and were so happy to be in college because they had sort of risen above their working class roots and they mm. threw away their flannel shirts and then suddenly grunge became popular and they had to go to a thrift store and buy the <laughs> kind of shirts that they that they wore in high school because suddenly working class Pacific Northwest fashion was fashionable. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is a bonus of sorts to the episode I did earlier this week on how music can change the way you see the world when you're young, and specifically how I fell in love with the music of Jane's Addiction when I was 18 years old. Today's episode focuses on an even more iconic album from that same era, the first notes of which should be familiar to most everyone. That is, of course, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, a song so distinctive for me I can still remember where I was when I first heard it. Music was important to me at that point in my life, as my previous podcast episodes about Jane's addiction and Fugazi have shown. Instead of using a personal or repertorial lens to look at Nirvana, however, this episode features a conversation with novelist Aaron Hamburger, whose 2019 book Nirvana is Here draws on his life experiences to explore how young people use music to frame their own identity in life. Where I was a straight kid going to a Christian college in Oregon when I heard Nirvana for the first time, the protagonist of Aaron's novel is gay and Jewish and trying to make sense of things in Michigan after a horrible event shakes up his life and he starts going to a new school. Aaron and I talk a little bit about the novel and its characters, but mostly we focus on what a band like Nirvana meant to us back in the day, how the band was anti-commercial in its own commercial way at a time when popular music was changing, how Kurt Cobain was as a sudden rock icon simultaneously inspiring and unsettling for those of us who loved his music. As usual, this episode is sponsored by Airtrex, which is a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. Check out their flight planning tools at airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. But for now, here's Aaron Hamburger and I talking about how music has a very specific way of speaking to you when you're going through a very specific time of your life. So your novel Nirvana is here uh, is about this boy named Ari who lives in Michigan in suburban Detroit. And a traumatic event happens to him. He's assaulted when he's quite young. He moves to a new school, and it's at that new school. And sort of through a new crush slash friend he meets there, he sort of changes. And it's about how certain events form one's identity, but it's also about how music is this lens through which you navigate certain versions of yourself. So Aaron, I'm going to start this out by asking you the most annoying question of, an, of, of a novelist, which is how personal is this story? Well, I think it's um, it's like a mashup of different episodes that happened in my life. So uh, when Nevermind and Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana came out, that was in 1991. Uh, and I was a freshman in college, so I, I wasn't in high school at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was assaulted when I was a kid and um, and I did change schools, although not as a direct result of that. So there were different things that, that did happen to me, but I sort of smushed them together to make a better story. One of the, th- the events that really <clears throat> um, influenced the story and the use of Nirvana in it was uh, when I went to college, 
as a freshman, trying to find my way, trying to find myself, trying to find my identity, as many freshmen in college do. I went to uh, Michigan and I joined up with the conservative college newspaper. I don't know why, um, but I just did. And uh, I remember feeling like kind of out of place there. Um, and uh, I remember the the editor of the paper was really handsome. And uh, I was talking with one of the other members of this newspaper was saying, oh, yeah, he's so cute. And I wanted to say, yeah, I think so, too. But I knew that I shouldn't. Um, so while that was going on, I was also starting to make friends with people who are a little more on the alternative side of things. And I remember being on the dorm room floor of, uh, of this guy and somebody rushing in from down the hall, literally saying, you've got to hear this and playing Smells Like Teen Spirit. I don't even remember if it was like a cassette or, a, or an album. I don't remember what it was, but playing it and listening to that that sound and just thinking, oh, my God, I've never heard anything like this before. Um, and as I started listening to that music and other music like it, I started feeling like I don't have to do things the way that I used to do them. Like I can make my own choices in the world. Um, and the other thing that I think was interesting about um, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana at the time, which uh, I only really um, saw in its true degree until I looked back on it, was how supportive they were of gay rights and um, and queer rights. You know, there are many pictures of Kurt Cobain wearing a dress and painting his nails while having this sort of shaggy, unshaven uh, beard. Um, and he would often speak out uh, for gay rights causes. They, they And they're very outspoken. In fact, in one of their albums in the liner notes, it says, like, if any of you hate homosexuals in any way, don't go to our concerts, don't buy our albums. This music is not for you. He he, he really helped to pave away, I think, for people who felt like they didn't fit in with the prevailing narrative. When you first heard Nirvana, what was it that appealed to you? Because certainly you didn't know, you know, Kurt's political stance at this point. Uh, and mm -hmm. then the, the R.A. character describes his voice a lot, you know, just sort of mm -hmm. des describes the... The, the emotion and the texture of his voice. Uh, and so how did you know that this music was different when you first heard it? That the words kind of didn't matter because half the time you couldn't understand what Kurt Cobain was saying. And uh, at this time, you know, there wasn't the internet. You couldn't look up uh, the lyrics, uh, you know, and they didn't provide uh, their lyrics in their liner notes from, uh, for some of their albums. So um, it was more the underlying emotion of it. There was this sense of um, longing and, and, and anger. Um, and I write about that in the book that it's the anger. You know, I come from the Midwest. And one of the things about being from the Midwest is like you're not allowed to get angry. Like, like being angry is kind of a bad thing. And um, even if you have something to rightly feel angry about. And, you know, as the character Ari does in the book, you know, he has a reason to feel angry because he's been victimized and it's unfair. Um, but he hasn't been give permission, given permission to give voice to that feeling. And just listening to somebody who was like, listen, I'm just going to let it all show. This is this is how I'm feeling right now. Well, you, you talk about this world that you come from, which which is sort of relatable. Um, as you address in the book, you know, Ari goes to this school and he realizes there's several different kinds of Christians. Um, and mm -hmm. ha having grown up Christian, I... I didn't go to a particularly conservative church, but I knew that evangelical world well. And so it's interesting to see Ari growing up in a very conservative Jewish world, you know, where, where people are actually warning him against the air quotes PC culture of, of college. First of all, when I was really young, I thought that 
um, Christians were the minority in the country and Jews were the majority because I just didn't see any or know any, you know, um, I I was like, who are these Christians? And to me, it was like one big mass. I had no idea that there was a difference between a Catholic and a Protestant. So, you know, again, so, you know, listening to, um, you know, Nirvana, you know, and uh, meeting people who listened to Nirvana or listened to other artists of that ilk uh, helped me to realize that, oh, there's there's other there's a big world out there. Not everybody lives by these same uh, values uh, and that I, I don't have to live by them either. I can live by my own values and I can make choices for myself. It's funny to hear you uh, state that you thought most people were Jewish in America. And I think that's often tied into youth in general, and even how your characters move through the story, because there's some pressure on Ari to be to be a little bit more jockey. You know, he takes karate lessons early on, and then later he plays tennis. And I think in high school in general, there's always these categories by which you can define yourself that you don't fully understand and aren't fully categories. And I think one interesting thing about the Justin character is that he doesn't really fall into a specific category. I think... Mm-hmm retrospective in teen movies and the way adults remember teenhood sort of encourages us to think that, well, the jocks are at this table and then the the art people are at this table when in fact it's a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe it's, you know, by having these Nirvana moments in our lives, um, and I had my own um, discovery of Nirvana uh, at a similar age, where it allows us to sort of look into more complexity that go beyond the prescribed roles we're supposed to play. Yeah. And that was very much my um, experience of high school was, you know, maybe more in the sort of freshman, sophomore year side of it, you know, you saw this sort of stratification of like, there's this click, there's that click, there's that click. Um, but, um, you know, as people started getting older, you know, you'd suddenly see like a jock who maybe was interested in being in the musical, or, you know, someone who's like more in the cool crowd who wanted to date somebody who was in the artsy crowd. And for a while it was sort of secret, but then it came out and and then it was OK. And if it was OK for them to do, there was OK for other people to do. Um, you know, you started to see this opening up of things. And one one interesting thing about, you know, I was by college, I sort of ended up being the jock. um well, I don't know. I was I was a quasi I was a track and field jock. So like even within jock culture, there's different <laughs> different different iterations of of uh, of jockness. Uh, but just sort of being um, sort of being in that indie rock crowd in Oregon, I often felt weird um, uh, in this scene because I because I was sort of I went to a Christian school and I was sort of jockey looking, and a lot of the people I was around were so purist in their ways of looking at grunge and indie rock that they kind of hated Nirvana, right? That Nirvana was for them main, mainstream. And it, and the more I got to know who Kurt Cobain was and sort of how sour he could be sometimes, I felt like if Cobain was in that room, he would also be one of the guys who was hating on Nirvana and rolling their eyes when you mentioned Nirvana because Nirvana was uncool and hence mainstream. Yeah, yeah. I think that tortured him a lot. Uh, you know, and I, I did a lot of research about um, the real Kurt Cobain, um, you know, not just my projection of him when I was young. And um, he was just an incredibly troubled person in, in so many ways. Um, and he could not find a way to to be in the world because what he wanted was impossible. He wanted to 
you know, kind of take it back in a certain way. And he, he couldn't like, you know, they, they became these sort of accidental uh, celebrity superstars. And then there was, you know, uh, just no way to retreat from that. Yeah, I think he made it. Maybe he was such a true believer in in punk rock purity that he didn't make a very good transition into being a celebrity. You know, it's funny we we all project um, onto rock stars, and maybe part of his discomfort with being famous was that he had the Aaron Hamburgers and the Rolf Potts's and everybody else of the world projecting certain identities onto him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I read those liner notes where he basically says, "If you if you hate homosexuals, stay the fuck away from us." And and, and right. I don't I don't even know if people have this relationship to music anymore. That I read the liner notes of every album I loved. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it was just, it was so, our relationship to music was so different at that time than it, than people's relationship is now. But, you know, you read the liner notes because, again, you could go to the band's website and, like, you know, find out what they were thinking. Or, you know, it's like right now if there's, like, some new musician I'm interested in, I just, like, type them into the Google and there's, like, a million interviews I can read about them and their own statements. And, you know, it was harder to get that information. And it was a lot about like word of mouth or what somebody told you, or you had to hunt up the information. It was, it was a much more active uh, relationship. And also there wasn't this, I don't know, I feel like right now in our um, popular culture and maybe our culture in general, it's about like the top uh, 10% of everything getting all the attention. Um, so like, you know, like in the book world, if it's not like, you know, reviewed in the New York times book review and in the, you know, top 10 bestsellers, then like, you just never hear about it, you know, either it gets like a ton of attention or no attention. Um, and so everybody kind of like, uh, you know, I often like meet with book groups and stuff and I hear like, Oh, what are they reading in the book groups? And every book group is reading like the same book. And I'm like, how is this happening? And it's, it's happening because, you know, even though there should be more avenues for information to get out there, there's so much information out there that we have this need for it to be kind of culled and edited and curated for us. And we all go to the same curators. Anyway, I think that's why we were, you know, when you found someone like uh, Nirvana, you know, that you were into, you studied everything that you could find about them when it happened to come your way. Nirvana was seen as this sort of breakthrough into air quotes, indie rock, but nevermind right. came out on Geffen, right? So they were sort of, um, yeah. you know, curated indie rock. And I, and, and again, I don't want to knock Nirvana because I really love Nirvana. But again, right. this is, this is part of that complexity that sort of broke Kurt in certain ways is that, is that because he was the curated indie rock that normal people, and he, he, he literally stated he didn't like normal people, whatever that means, suddenly <laughs> liked, suddenly liked indie rock but then, but then the weird thing is that the more I the more I read about Kurt Cobain, the the less the more the aura went away. Like the more you study Kurt Cobain, the more he becomes troubled Cobain. And mm-hmm. um, I think that you want to. And I, actually, I'm curious to know if if um, if you were were ever troubled by getting to know more about him because he was you know obviously so pro gay rights at a time when nobody really was you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I would read statements where he said that you know like I he wanted in high school he wanted to fit in with the geeks but his geeks were sub geeks you know they didn't listen to Devo they painted their paint their faces at football games right and mm-hmm. so I was thinking well I didn't paint my face at football games but I knew people who did and those people are fine right so right. so right. so suddenly the more I knew about Co- Cobain the more I realized just the specificity of him as a human you know how did that affect you the more you got to know him and and. And is that even possible for us to relate to our rock star heroes as an aura as opposed to as a 
empirically factual person these days. Yeah. Well, I think there's, you know, all of us, we have uh, two selves. We have the, you know, the real human being that we are, which is complicated and messy and not 100 percent anything. Um, and then we have the image of ourselves that is put out to the public. Um, and that's increasingly true now where, you know, part of our lives are lived on social media and part of our lives are, are lived like in our hearts and in the real world. Um, and the discrepancy between the two often makes people miserable. And so I think that's true for Kurt Cobain. I think there was this persona of Kurt Cobain that, you know, uh, that we had access to at the time. Um, and that persona was very uh, inspiring to me. Um, and then I think there was the real person who suffered a great deal. Um, and, you know, and it, it, it's, it's troubling, you know, because you almost feel like, wow, like I got to have this, this piece of him, but the price of me having this piece of him was that he was so, you know, tortured by, um, his, his fame and celebrity, you know, and th sometimes there's just people out there who are just, they're really just kind of by nature troubled souls. And, um, you know, not everybody's life's journey is like from one to like roughly like 80, like the average life expectancy, like some people's life journey, you know, it's like Michael Jackson, you know, like you just didn't see him getting old and like being like a grandfather. Then there's also the, you know, the ideas of the nature of genius and, and clearly, you know, that was a part of Kurt Cobain's persona and Michael Jackson's yeah. too. I mean, they, they, they had fraught relationships with their genius for different reasons and they're, and they're very different people, but I guess they both died younger than you would expect. But then you also have, you know, people like Leonard Cohen, who, who we sort of, when you see, when I see Leonard Cohen in my head, I see him as an older man, you know? And so he had a full, a full life and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe like I didn't discover Leonard Cohen until I was a little bit older. And so I didn't have, you know, like a 1960s or 70s relationship to, to Leonard Cohen. It's, it's so funny that you mentioned Leonard Cohen because I've been listening to like the songs of Leonard Cohen, like nonstop, like the past couple of months. And huh. And also just watched uh, again, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, where that it's, it's like three Leonard Cohen songs that just get repeated throughout that wonderful uh, Robert Altman movie. So I don't know, maybe there's something in the air that <laughs> Leonard Cohen is coming out right now. <laughs> My dad will listen to um, like Hallelujah on his iPad. He's 80. Right. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he just loves it. Right. And so mm -hmm. um, generationally, he came before Leonard Cohen, but somehow that spoke to him. Uh, in yeah. the same way that Nirvana might speak to my nephews who are teenagers. Um, yeah. And then even like, I remember listening, like my, my, when the doors were blown open for me on Leonard Cohen, it was listening to the Rufus Wainwright version of Hallelujah, if mm. you're familiar with that. Um, and, and so it's interesting how, in a way, like who Kurt Cobain is remembered as no longer his property anymore, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or Leonard Cohen or Michael Jackson or anyone else that, that eventually, I mean, I think there's this, there's this core conflict with Kurt Cobain that in a way he eventually had to surrender to being pop popular culture, you know, yeah. and that, yeah. that, that he hated that. But, and, and there's actually some, some documents of him like getting excited when bleach came out, him searching the radio for the song and getting excited when it came out again, that, that sort of fresh faced version of Kurt. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think the vision of his genius was so pure and you can disagree with this, but it, it felt like he just, he believed in the idea of authenticity for lack of a better word or sort of, you know, the purity, non-corporate, non-pop culture level of music that, that when he entered that world, and let's face it, maybe you and I wouldn't have known him had he not entered that pop culture world level of music, 
that that yeah. kind of destroyed him. No, I, I think that's exactly that. That's the story of, of Kurt Cobain right there. Um, you know, it reminds me, um, you know, it's interesting. We're both interested in travel. It reminds me of the search for authenticity in, in travel. Mm. Um, which is another of these sort of fruitless searches. Um, you know, it's like, you know, you go to this new place. Like, oh, we don't want to eat at the touristy place. We want to eat at like the real place where the locals are, you know. And it's like, well, well you're not a local and you never will be. You know, you're, you're only a local if you're a local, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I think I think that desire for um, for for authenticity is um, whenever you seek it outside yourself you know, it, it's just a recipe for unhappiness. And it feels like authenticity, I want to talk about authenticity in teenhood because, you know, who is your authentic self in teenhood? Like I was five, yeah. six when I was a sophomore. I was six, two when I was a senior. I was treated as a different human being every year I was in high school. Um, wow. But you you, know, you talk about like office, authenticity and travel, it's a, it's a difficult thing and it, it doesn't really exist. And right. um, I was recently talking to a travel anthropologist and this is actually... A, tr a problem for remote cultures who interact with tourists who are in flux and have always been in flux, but the tourists really want to see them in sort of their, their bark loincloth vision <laughs> of, of who they are. And so they're sort of performing the bark loincloth version of who they are when really the, the, the native people are thinking, just buy some fucking souvenirs um, so that this can be beneficial for me. And so there's several levels at which you can unpack authenticity within travel, there's several levels with which you can uh, unpack authenticity with music. And of course, obviously that sort of destroyed Kurt to a certain extent. But then there's also this idea of authenticity in teenhood and the fluidity of who you are when you're a teen, right? And, yeah. and, so, and so it feels like that's something that Ari is sort of up against in your novel, even as he's using Nirvana and Kurt Cobain as a, as a sort of an anchor to help steer who he wants to be. Right, right. It's almost that's an interesting metaphor. It's almost like they enable him to get out of where he was to move to a different place. It's like this vehicle that moves him forward, but it's not the ultimate destination. And I think for me, that that was my experience, too, that, um, you know, when I was in um, college, like suddenly I was like, you know, wearing like crazy clothes that I bought at the vintage clothing store and, you know, plaid shirts and, you know, um, I, I tried to dye my hair, but I was starting to lose it. So it, it didn't work very well, so, you know, but I was experimenting with trying to, you know, alter my look, alter my, the way I spoke. Um, in fact, my, my father, I remember saying to me, why are you all of a sudden speaking in this effective way? You know, huh. he noticed uh, the change, even the way that I was talking, uh, the expressions that I use, the things I referred to, you know, because I knew I just didn't want to be who I, who I was. I wanted to move away from that and anything that could kind of get me out of that, that other um, persona w was good in my mind, but I couldn't stay there because that wasn't me either. It was just sort of like this vehicle to get me out of where I was. And then, uh, you know, I sort of settled into the, to the person that I eventually became. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a journey. I mean, it keeps changing. You know, I think I'm different. I'm very different now from who I was five, six years ago. Yeah, well, this is, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of so many things. I, I talked to a narrative therapist for a podcast quite recently, and she talks about one problem within marriage is that people get married and then they keep changing, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, that you don't, you don't marry the entity that this person was the moment you say I do, that you're both Hopefully. changing. Yeah. Hopefully. 
<laughs> yeah, because I think if you if you stay stagnant in those old roles, I think you know that's that's very destructive. You know, like you want to you want to find someone that you can grow with together. I mean, ideally, I would think. Well, and and even to stretch this metaphor even more is that part of I think Kurt's angst is that he, a lot of his moral world was a sort of a teenage moral world. It was sort of an adolescent moral world, and that that in a way he had trouble adjusting to you know, this, this constructed vision, you know, of course now, maybe now that's everybody, you know, do you live up to your Instagram feed, you know, the, the, the stories you project about yourself, but at least then you can project your own image, right? That, that, yeah. that Kurt's image was constructed for him elsewhere. It's funny that you bring in fashion because it's easy to forget how central fashion was to grunge. And right. in a way, I'm curious to know what you think. It feels like that was sort of, um, like basically a, a British rock journalist named Everett True, I don't know why I know this, came in and he wrote about Nirvana. He he really helped make them famous. But one thing he grabbed onto was their white working classness, which was mm -hmm. symbolized by flannel. And so yeah. when I was at my Christian college in Oregon, I actually had friends who had come from their logger towns in the Pacific Northwest and were so happy to be in college because they had sort of risen above their working class roots and they mm. threw away their flannel shirts and then suddenly grunge became popular and they had to go to a thrift store and buy the <laughs> kind of shirts that they that they wore in high school because suddenly working class Pacific Northwest fashion was fashionable. Wow. Um, and so, um, and so I, I remember this too. And I, I, you know, I was from the Midwest, a different part of the Midwest, but, but, um, I don't know if I had flannels going there. So so it was different. Um, I, I was working class adjacent without really being working class. And so there was sort of this class discourse that became a part of it um, that, that added to the complexity that, that we were actually wearing flannel because we wanted to express our individualism, but in a way that was prescribed by the, the, the Geffen Corporation band that we saw on MTV every week, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that was, you know, I actually, um, so... In college, I worked at a um, student newspaper. I wrote a, a like a column about culture, and so I wrote about this kind of like, what is alternative? Like even at the time, people were like, is there really such a thing as alternative? And like, what does it mean to um, call a culture alternative when you know, sort of the uh, you know emblematic fashion of that culture, the plaid shirt, is now like, you know, at J.C. Penney's or you know, the department store, like all these like frat boys and sorority girls are like running to like buy these plaid shirts and like listen to their Pearl Jam records. And, and, you know, um, can that really be called alternative anymore? Um, and I, and I think, uh, Kurt Cobain sings about that in, in the music at times. He's, you know, he, he makes fun of the people who are sort of like the, the, uh, uh Johnny come lately fans who, who listen to music, but don't really understand the import of the words, don't understand the, the ethos that they're, that they're trying to to evoke again this this question of, of authenticity so i think even at the time it was a very and even the word alternative was very uh tortured um and there's a part in the book where um ari and justin are having this ari is like asking justin what's alternative and and justin's like alternative is nothing anymore like it's just this marketing label that uh you know ruined like whatever whatever authenticity it had like once you slapped a label on it then it uh, then it, you know, lost all its currency and it lost all its, all its value. So I'm curious just to sort of put a bow on everything. Um, do you, do you think music still has the power to affect and, sh and shape people's lives and identities and give them 
sort of a persona to step into and ex- and experiment with versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And and um and then also does it continue to affect your life or do you think this music thing is specific to a very young part of our lives? Oh, those are two really good questions. I was actually I was I was thinking about that before we um sat down and talked. I wondered like, you know, could there be something like this for uh young people today? And you know, from where I sit uh, the the answer is oh definitely not you know it was it was different when we were young than it is now um, but I teach you know a lot of undergrads um, you know I teach creative writing in college and I can see in them similar uh, things and sentiments uh, to the ones that that I, that I expressed and felt when I was their age you know it was funny I one of them was writing about um, how she was listening to uh, Random Access Memories by Daft Punk on a hike and how meaningful and life-changing this was to her. Um, so, and I was like, Oh, I, I, I guess I'm just getting old. And that's why, <laughs> that's why I think like my experience is so, you know, as a young person being inspired by music is so unique and couldn't possibly be, be replicated. Maybe every, and what's interesting is I've talked to people who are older than I am who say, Oh, you know, I read your book and I, I couldn't really, you know, Nirvana, like I don't really like their music and I, I can't really understand that. But, but I was really inspired by this other band, you know, the Beatles or what, you know, they all, everybody had a band that sort of spoke to them at a certain age and that was very important to them. So maybe, maybe there's something very universal there. When I was working on Nirvana and, and doing research for the book, I started listening to a ton of music from that time period, the Stone Roses and the Pixies and um, I don't – I can't even remember all the bands I was listening to. But it was just like almost non – you know, Smashing Pumpkins, all, all this stuff. Um, and now like I, I kind of um, – it, it, it's – I'm sort of over it. <laughs> I don't really want to listen to that anymore. I kind of overdosed on it. So I'm listening to more modern things. But I think it still, it still has a kind of effect. So. Yeah, no, there, there was a, there's a line, this is really going to date me. There's a, there's a line from the Ferris Bueller script that didn't make it into the movie uh-huh. where, where Ferris Bueller says that when his mom listens to the Beatles, she doesn't hear music. She just hears memories. Um, uh, yeah. Reminds me of Proust. Yeah, it's a very Proustian uh, sentiment. It's like, you know, you go to the past, but the more you go to the past and the past becomes part of your present, you know, and you don't actually experience it anymore and it loses its, uh, its value. But you know what I think, um, even more, more than music. And maybe this is because this is why I'm a writer or, you know, defines me as a writer. I feel like literature is that thing that, uh, defines me and changes my perception and, um, enlarges me more than any other, um, genre of art. There's something about the experience of, of reading a book or reading a short story or a great essay. And particularly these days when we consume so much information in these, bite-sized forms and we're clicking and we have this very active um, relationship uh, and we're skimming these articles that we read online or these blog posts or whatever it is that we're reading. But when you sit down with a book, particularly one that is not on a, a Kindle or some electronic device, it's just paper, you have to subsume yourself into the consciousness of someone else. It's, you know, it, it's the ultimate antidote to that horrible cliche, your opinion matters. When you're reading a book, your opinion doesn't matter. What matters is the writer's opinion and the writer's vision. And you are saying, I am going to enter that world. I'm going to listen to that voice. You know, I just finished reading actually another coming of age story, Claudine at School by Colette. And I mean, it is the ultimate in sort of like teenage rebelliousness uh, voice. It's just this incredible, uh, you know, young woman's voice. 
And a very she has a very particular way of looking at the world. And as you're listening to her speaking and describing her experience, you suddenly feel like, uh, oh my God, you know, the, the dress that somebody is wearing to school, like matters more than anything, or, you know, who has a crush on whom is like, this is the sum total of like, you know, all life experience. Um, and I think there's something very, very salutary in reminding yourself, like you are not everything. Your opinion doesn't matter. Someone else's opinion can matter more for, for a brief period while you're reading a book. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Aaron Hamburger's novel Nirvana is here, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs> <laughs>